My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I do think there is more consciousness within the general public, within the media, of the fact that people of colour, black people specifically, have been struggling to find a footing, to be taken seriously, to have our stories uplifted, to be given the respect that we deserve for a long time. So, you know, I have hope or else I wouldn't be <laughs> doing the work that I'm doing. Well, we've all been pushed around. Hello and Here welcome to It's Complicated with me, Tanya Goodin. The podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. Because we've all been pushed around. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world. And understanding why sometimes it's so hard to do. Because if we learn how to step away from our phones more, we'll be learning how to step in more to our lives. Improving our relationships, our work and our health. I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of digital wellbeing movement Time to Log Off. Each week I'll be asking a new guest what they've learned about the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. So it's the very last episode in series four of the podcast. And of course, when I first started planning this series, we didn't know we were about to be hit by a pandemic. So, so much of what I thought I was going to do with this particular series was completely thrown up in the air. And I had to kind of make things up, really, as I was going along. We ended up recording it in a way that I hadn't anticipated almost all remotely recorded. We ended up with some guests that I hadn't originally anticipated, a lot of very happy accidents along the way. And I wonder if it's a bit of a metaphor for lockdown that the last few months haven't necessarily been what we planned or we expected, but actually some quite good stuff has come out of it. And some particularly good stuff for me is the chance to chat with my very last guest of the series, because she's actually somebody I've been trying to get hold of 
and interview since series one last year. So I'm chatting today to Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff, who is Galdem's head of editorial. She's also the host of the Growing Up with Galdem podcast, and she's the editor of Mother Country, Real Stories of the Windrush Children. And in case you haven't heard of Galdem, it's an online and also print publication which is entirely devoted to telling the stories of women and non-binary people of colour. So it really platforms underrepresented modern voices. And we, a lot of our chat today was about, unfortunately, one of the other big themes of lockdown, which was racism. And we talked about not just the behaviour of people online, but actually the racism that is kind of built in structurally to a lot of the platforms that we're using, particularly social media. We talked about algorithmic bias. We talked about the story of Galdem and what Galdem's been doing in lockdown. And obviously we talked about Charlie herself and her experiences as a journalist using technology and how she first started out writing online, which is actually a really lovely story. And she introduced me to a whole new kind of part of the internet that I didn't know very much about, which I won't spoil by telling you up front. It was a really lovely, very wide-ranging chat. She's an incredibly thoughtful woman to speak to. And I think it's a really important subject that we were talking about and some really good stuff in here about what we can all be doing differently. So I hope you enjoy the very last episode in Series 4 and I look forward to welcoming you all back again for Series 5 later in the year. So hi Charlie, great to have you on. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. I just want to explain in advance that we're recording this in the middle of Storm Ellen, so there's howling wind outside the room I'm recording this in, just in case anyone hears anything. Um, I don't know what it's like your end, Charlie, but it's very windy here. It's actually not too bad in South, but um, I was woken up a few times in the middle of the night by some, some howling, so I'm sure it will come back this way. So I... There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I want to kick off with two things that we've talked about a lot in lockdown, which were TikTok, which has become, you know, I mean, it it started the year as a massive phenomenon, but became even more popular in lockdown. And unfortunately, racism online. And there is, unfortunately, a rather unpleasant link between those two. Uh, And one of the reasons I really wanted to chat to you today was because of this fantastic investigation you did in The Guardian, how racism became a hot trend for TikTok's teens. So can we kick off with you just explaining a little bit about the investigation that you did and what you found about what was happening on TikTok? Sure. Um, It was actually uh, an article that I published on Galdem, not The Guardian. Oh, sorry. Um, that's okay um um but yeah the investigation or feature rather i basically got started on it after seeing a lot of worrying videos not popping up on tiktok itself but on twitter because interestingly that's kind of where people went to kind of call out the the sort of influx of, of racist videos on tiktok yeah so on Twitter, there was a, quite a few teenagers who were posting these these extremely, very overtly racist videos. Sort of maybe the most well-known one being 
it's, it's quite hard to explain it, but basically it was a girl and a boy who were high school students and it was like a trend where you kind of poured water into a receptacle of some kind and like made something with it like and you'd have sort of like you'd hold up signs being like you know I'm making a just like a stereotype of some kind and so this stereotype of me is made up of like one part this one part that two parts this and then they'd yeah. pour sort of cup cups of water into whatever the receptacle was to like make this this stereotype and this particular one they were like making a black person and the video sort of featured the n-word and it was just yeah it was just very very bad and after the the video sort of went viral on Twitter and there was all this sort of negative backlash to it. The two students, I think they lost their places at university or they got kicked out of school. And that, yeah, that essentially just led me down like a rabbit hole of finding out what else was, was going on on that particular platform. And and unfortunately, there was a lot of other young, very, very young teenagers who were making similarly problematic videos. But on the more uplifting side, also a lot of teenagers who were calling them out for that behaviour and were sort of ready to not take them down, but um, just ready to like come up with intelligent reposts to their ignorance. So that was quite heartwarming. So one of the things I, I watched the video and I was so shocked when I saw it, but one of the things I suppose that really stuck out for me in in your piece was that it wasn't reported on TikTok, it was reported on Twitter. That's where, as you just said, that's where the teens went to report it. So what did TikTok do about it? Well, I spoke to, uh, I emailed TikTok for uh, like a, a response and they kind of sent me quite a generic reply about the sort of moderation that goes into the platform. But I mean, I think it's important to note that there is racism on all social media platforms. It's, mm. not, it's not unique to TikTok, it's not something special that only happens on TikTok but they have got form in terms of like being particularly bad in terms of not taking down videos being particularly bad in treating their creators who are people of color poorly so yeah I don't necessarily think that the level of racism that we saw in early lockdown will continue on the platform but you know there's corners as I say there's corners of all social media platforms which have got some real toxic horrible things going on so yeah what was it do you think early on in lockdown that made that type of video proliferate i mean yeah i know that's a, this is a massive question <laughs> why there is so much racism online but was it you know everyone just you know they had so much time on their hands or was there something about what I was mean, happening it's, around that time it's difficult it's difficult to know whether or not there was more happening during lockdown or whether or not there was more whether or not we started to notice it more yeah, in lockdown. more reporting of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, I, yeah, I don't have the, the answer to that because I know that there were young people here on TikTok prior to 2020 who were also complaining of, of coming across really horrible things. And But what I will say was that there were, there were a couple of trends that were particularly... led themselves particularly well to racist jokes and to... Well, they're not even jokes, it's just <laughs> racist nastiness. And, yeah, a couple of, a couple of trends that... that help to embolden people I think. So is there something about social media that is magnifying that behaviour or is it just reflecting what's going on offline what's your view about that because obviously there are 
you know, I think I think the world splits into two camps about this. There are people who think actually what social media is doing is it's encouraging bad behaviour because of the way the algorithm works and because, you know, of clickbait and the possibility of, you know, really unpleasant stuff to go viral. And then there are people who say, largely from the tech companies, <laughs> um, actually all tech, all social media does is reflect the society we've got and reflects back to us things that we don't like about ourselves when we see it online. So where do you stand on that? I mean, I think it's both, really. Like, I know that's like a boring answer, but it's true. Like, I think there are some social media companies that could do a lot more to not help amplify racist views and not allow racists to keep on using their platforms. And then, you know, on the flip side, I know that just as many kids might be getting bullied because of their skin colour on the internet, they will be facing that in their real life as well. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things you referred to in that piece was an experiment that was done by a researcher at the University of California in Berkeley who looked at algorithmic bias in TikTok. So what he said was that TikTok is recommending other accounts to follow based on people's profile photos. So that was clear kind of physiognomic bias. So if you were following white teens... Uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white teens, you've got more blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white teens um, to follow. And part, you know, there are two issues about that. One is the whole kind of filter bubble bubble thing that that creates, that you're only staying in your own little area. And the other is something that you referred to earlier, which is that content creators who are black and people of colour are not visible because simply the algorithm is saying you won't be interested in somebody who's black because you're following, you know, largely people who are white. Yeah, and I mean, I think when I read that, it was it was just it's just shocking that the people who create these algorithms' own biases sort of infect these platforms that are used so widely. I just think it's the most ridiculous and heinous thing. I don't understand why it would ever be a smart thing to do or to sort of program into any system that you're creating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he called it face-based filter bubbles. Mm. Um, and when I when I thought about it, I thought, do I want to be recommended? You know, if, I, if I'm following people who've largely got blonde hair, I don't want to be recommended people who've got blonde hair. You know, that's not the basis on which I'm following people. I'm following them because of the content they're creating and, you know, the areas they're interested in. So, yeah, like you, I thought someone somewhere has said we need to look at the faces of these people and say that's who you want to hear from. I don't think he, I mean, in fact, TikTok said they denied that actually went on. But in his experiment, which BuzzFeed replicated, they found exactly the same thing, right down to ethnicity and hair colour um, on everyone that they were following. So you're the head of editorial at Galdem. I've been such a fan of Galdem since I first came across you, which I think was about three years ago. So that was a couple of years after you started. And... For people who are listening who haven't heard of Galdem, you're an online and print publication and your kind of mission is telling the stories of women and non-binary people of colour. And you talk about the whitewashing of the media landscape, the fact that the current journalistic landscape is 94% white and 55% male. And you're trying to redress that imbalance. So tell me a bit about what you do, Charlie, and in the five years because I think you started in 2015 or was it 2014 that Galdem yeah 2015 2015 right, yeah. so in the five years 
that you've been around, have you noticed any changes? Have you noticed any improvements? You know, what what is happening to the whitewashing of the media landscape? Is it getting any better? I get asked this question a lot. I mean, it's again, it's hard to quantify because there's not enough data kept on different ethnicities within newsrooms and within media in general. <clears throat> but from, you know, more recent studies than the one that we cite when we say that the media is 94% white and 55% male, which came from a study that was conducted by City University in 2016, there doesn't appear to be a huge amount of change. What I do think has changed is the types of content that mainstream publications have decided to focus on. And that's been really exciting to watch. And, you know, I like to think that Gaudem has had a, a small hand in that. And I think following the sort of resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer, we'll see it happening with even more speed than it was before in terms of people actually caring about race issues, how we report on race in this country, hopefully. And then the knock-on of that being how we report on any issue to do with like marginalised people within this country and and how it needs to be given due care and diligence. I think as we saw earlier this week with the BBC blackout, so people calling for the BBC to be boycotted for a day because of their use of the N-word and their decision mm. to double down on that until eventually they apologise. I do think there is like more consciousness yeah, within the general public, within the media, of the fact that people of colour, black people specifically, have been struggling to find a footing, to be taken seriously, to have our, our stories uplifted, to be given the respect that we deserve for a long time. So, you know, I have I have hope or else I wouldn't be <laughs> doing the work that I'm doing. But I also think that there will remain a place for Gaudem in this landscape for, for a long time. Tell me a bit about your view about the Black Lives Matter movement this summer particularly, because the movement's been around for a while. Is it just, you know, the the really unpleasant deaths that happened? Is it the fact that we were all in lockdown? Is it the fact that social media enabled that to be, you know, people to see what was going on for themselves that made the difference? What do you think has caused this wave to be as strong as it has been. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very likely that COVID had an effect in terms of visibility. It felt very different from the summer of 2016, which is when I last remember mm. um, those matters sort of being at the top of people's agenda. Yeah, uh, I think that in part has to do with how the media landscape has changed, as I said before, and there perhaps being slightly more black journalists in positions of like relative power or having platforms that they've built up um, since the social media age sort of began and being able to use them really effectively to get their message out. And then, you know, I, I, I definitely think the sort of the boredom of, of for some people, at least of, of COVID in terms of like having a lot more time to yourself, having a lot, spending a lot more time online. There's studies that people uh, that I read that said that people spent we're spending a lot more time online during yeah. um, coronavirus or during the lockdown period, rather. That Yeah, I think that definitely would have had an impact. So, yeah, and, and yeah, then finally, of course, the, the deaths themselves. But again, it's that thing of like, you know, this, 
as I'm sure you'll know, Tanya, like this, the deaths aren't aren't new. They no. they they didn't stop between 2016 and 2020. They were always ongoing. There were always horrible cases. They just didn't happen to get the media attention that George Floyd's death did, that Breonna Taylor's death did, that Tony McDay's death did. Or obviously all at different variations. But yeah, it was it was very overwhelming time period to be a black journalist but also I'm obviously pleased that the discourse happened that it continues to happen yeah Yeah. step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a grand slam title Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. And what, you know, I'm really conscious as, as I'm talking to you that, you know, people are going to be listening to this thinking, what can they do to support? And there's been a lot of very kind of performative social media support for Black Lives Matter, you know, in terms of hashtag, you know, following and retweeting and what's your view on actually what the most useful thing people can do i'm i'm thinking on digital as well as offline yeah i mean support. i don't i again this is a question i get asked quite a lot and i feel like i'm so any, sorry i'm asking you no no it's okay don't worry <laughs> no no but it's just i just think it's an important thing to address because i think one of the most frustrating things to me during that time period was the amount of white friends or acquaintances from my past who sort of popped up to me to ask what me I do? what I wanted them to do yeah and yeah. you know I'm not an activist I'm yeah. a journalist and I you know there is a lot of information out there so I would just say google yeah <laughs> and go on social media because I, I you know I don't 
I don't necessarily want to be telling you what to do. Everyone's got a different place within the movement. Everyone can be doing something, sure. But like for me, just as a random black person, as a, as a black journalist to be telling you, you don't have all do, the answers. Yeah. No, of course not. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be possible for me to. There's things that I that I'm doing, and you know, I I'm on this journey as well. Like I. I, uh, as I say, I'm not an activist, but I, I care deeply about Black Lives Matter on a personal and political level. And in the stories that I tell and in the voices I choose to uplift with the platforms that I do have, I'm very conscious of of that all the time. But yeah, I think, you know, there's there's at this stage, there's plenty of resources out there for, for people who are genuinely seeking next steps. And, and that's that's really exciting, I think, you know, mm. that, that so many people have taken the time, taken the energy to, to create these infographics, to create these lists. And yeah, all you have to do now is, is put in a little bit of work to find them, I think. Mm. Can I just tell you about one of the pieces that you commissioned? I don't think you wrote this yourself on Galdem, mm-hmm. that I absolutely loved, which was, I felt a real story of lockdown and COVID-19, which was how South Asian corner shop culture helped the UK survive COVID-19. I actually read that piece and said yes out loud. <laughs> and I remember having this conversation with my neighbours. So what, what the piece is about is the fact that so many of us rediscovered our corner shops. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were let down so badly by the big supermarkets and the big kind of impersonal chains who weren't relating to us as consumers, uh, as being part of our community. And it was an absolutely brilliant piece about how those families built those businesses and felt very strongly that they were a central part of the local community. And when mm-hmm. COVID hit, they were there to support the community and kind of, you know give us what we needed and I was absolutely thrilled when I read that corner shops and independent grocers had reported a 63% upsurge in trade during lockdown uh, as a result of us rediscovering that so I love that piece what was your thought when you read it were you again you know one of those people like me who thought you know well about time that we're saying this that Uh, these are important parts of our communities yeah well it it was a piece that I conceptualised actually. So oh. um, yeah, so it came from the fact that I had been obviously going to my corner shop um, probably for the first time since I'd, I'd moved into my house about a year ago, and I just saw how much trade they were getting, all the sort of boxes piled up, and also saw like there's like a local classic sort of local Facebook group where everyone just complains about everything. Um, and I saw people sort of like talking about how grateful they were to the corner shop in, yeah. in, on that page as well. And then I spoke to Sana Hack, who's the journalist who wrote the piece. She's a former Galdem intern and just an absolutely, as you have read, like brilliant writer. And yeah, I just gave her this sort of nugget of an idea and she, she took it away and, and created this, this beautiful feature. So yeah, I was really, really pleased with how it, it turned out. It was exactly kind of what I was hoping it would be. And she really went above and beyond in terms of finding interviewees and really sort of telling the story of like the the South Asian communities who she references within the piece and not just their sort of successes but also you know how hard it's been since like yeah. they a lot of them moved over in the 70s and the racism they suffered and and so on and so forth so yeah I was I was super super happy with that piece. I mean, like you, we had a local WhatsApp group and everybody on the WhatsApp group was talking about our corner shop. 
mm. who I've been a customer of for over 20 years. Uh, so mm. I know the family really well and everyone was saying, you know, how wonderful they were being. And I, I remember us all saying, you know, we must not forget this. We must remember yeah. the fact that they were there for us. hundred um, percent. Yeah. When we yeah. were all in lockdown. And yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a really, really emotional reading the piece, actually, talking about some of the struggles that those families faced when they first came to Britain to mm. establish themselves and then thinking about how much they're now giving back to the community. So, yeah. I really hope, like you, that they're going to carry on seeing that kind of grand swell of support. Uh, there's a lovely quote where um, one of the owners of the shop says, my dad's always said it's a community shop and lockdown has really shown that. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, as I say, it's. It, I think it really sort of captures a moment and I'm with you, like I, I hope that that's the same. I've certainly still been going to my local nisa yeah, <laughs> with more too. frequency than i than i did before um, in fact yeah. 10 minutes before we started recording i ran out of batteries and ran to the corner shop to get the battery so, <laughs> so yet again they didn't let me down i just want to interrupt briefly to let you all know about something really exciting that we've just launched at time to log off we can't get to you in the real world at the moment through our retreats and workshops So we've just launched a new online digital detox course. It's a self-paced six-week video-based course. I'm holding your hand every step of the way through the story of persuasive technology, how to set boundaries around tech, and how to rewire our relationship using a variety of tricks, tips, and techniques that we've developed at Time to Log Off over the years. You can find it on the Time to Log Off website, in the online course section, or you can just Google Digital Detox Course and find us there. And we're offering a special early bird discount for the first two weeks of the course. So do check it out, and I look forward to maybe welcoming some of you on the course in the near future. So obviously the podcast is about our relationship with technology. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship with tech. So obviously, you know, you you write on Galdem. You obviously use social media. What? How would you describe your relationship with technology? I guess sort of turbulent, much like everyone's is. I often think I can, I should, could, can use social media in a smarter way but I'm also coming to accept that I will sort of never there's some journalists who are very good at sort of packaging their work up in these sort of social media sized sort of bites and also sort of being quite public facing Mm. on social media and I actually don't I've you know I've, I've done bits and pieces of that over the years but I actually don't really enjoy it that much I just I I and I don't think it's necessarily for me or where I want my career to go. So I guess that's kind of where I'm at in my head with it at the moment, yeah. So do you enjoy writing for print as much as you do writing online? Do you feel there's a difference yeah, yeah. in the two? There's a I mean, di- I mean, different audience kind of. or a different approach? I mean, I don't know in terms of audience because I guess you never there's been like throughout the course of my career there's been like a couple of times where I've like received like letters from elderly people 
who've like read an article in the Guardian that I've written in print. But beyond that, you don't really get much feedback from yeah. your work that appears in print and it always also goes online now as well so it's kind of like there's <laughs> the difference is like neg- negligible but yeah I mean I, I enjoy writing for both but I'm I'm also you know I'm I'm always trying to challenge myself to not get sucked into that thing of like needing or seeking too much approval for the pieces that I write because I think it can be very intoxicating and I don't know how like healthy it is to sort of write an article and get like a thousand retweets and you're like wow like that's fab but like if you haven't done the internal work and if it doesn't get a thousand retweets you you wouldn't feel good about the piece <laughs> then that's not a good sign because yeah. like yeah because that means that you're sort of basing your work's worth upon other people's judgment of or other people's sort of visible like positive judgment of it and I don't think that that's a good thing and I think that a lot of journalists can sort of get stuck in that mindset and even if I think back now to the piece that I've written the pieces that I feel good about and I know are good there's definitely a huge correlation there between the positive feedback that I've received and I like on Twitter say and the pieces I'm like yeah that was a good piece like you know with the TikTok piece for instance like I know that was a good piece because it got 400 retweets on twitter but like <laughs> i'm sure there's like you know another piece that i wrote around the same time period that perhaps didn't go go viral or anything and and was equally as good but like you just you, your mind gets sort of fixated on this high of yeah of, the of, retweet as a yeah, as a yeah. measurement of yeah quality which is ridiculous exactly. yeah. i'm always really struck by how many journalists seem to spend every waking hour on twitter um (laughs) and i just wonder you know i'm I'm thinking about the two pieces we've referenced in this podcast which both obviously very obviously required a lot of research Mm -hmm. a lot of in-depth time and trouble to actually you know find the stories behind what's going on and i wonder if you know the, the the distraction of spending so much time on Twitter is what's causing a lot of journalists not to take that time and trouble. You know, the pieces are getting more and more superficial um, because if you're spending, you know, 12 hours a day tweeting, when are you putting the work in to do the research? I mean, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because I think for, I mean, certainly for a lot of journalists of my generation, you will get commissions based on your tweets. So, like, you do have to put time and effort into your social media presence until it gets to a certain level until you get to a certain level of sort of notability or you could certainly argue that because obviously there are journalists out there who who, even of my age who have much smaller social media profiles and they will still get commissions on the basis of them producing very very strong copy but like I think you know if you are someone who who likes writing opinion pieces say likes doing comment journalism and is good at doing fast turnaround pieces then then yeah like Twitter is a good platform for you and it, it makes sense for you to use it but yeah, I, I mean, I could talk about Twitter all day. It's like you know, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely like a, um, it's definitely the the crutch or the sort of thing that I think drags a lot of like young journalists down because you know it can it can be a really toxic place and like if you do happen to be the person that people decide not to like that day for some like small misdemeanor you can have your whole life picked apart on that website and mm. yeah it's just it's it can be pretty unhealthy which is another reason why I think ultimately like if I felt like I could I would definitely re- remove myself from Twitter specifically I don't really have the same relationship with other social media platforms but Twitter I just I just I don't use it in the same way that I used to I don't feel 
necessarily confident in sort of putting my opinions out there in the same way that I used to. So yeah, it's a it's a weird place. It's a I, I think it's a particularly bad place for women as well. Can be a particularly mm. bad place for women. And I mean, I don't know if you've had bad experiences with things that you've written or just just having a profile on Twitter sometimes is enough to, you know, cause a pile on sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think I've had pylons, but they've always been from like the alt right rather than people whose opinions I actually care about. So and, that you know, it's easy to dismiss people when you don't respect them. But I think the thing that I fear is like me making a mistake somewhere in something that I say publicly and something that I write publicly and then there being like a genuine backlash and obviously like I think everyone should be held accountable I I agree with that I think it's a good thing but I think that on Twitter things spiral and as you say they can turn into these sort of nasty let's just tear this person down with no sort of good faith and with no intention of actually like them like wanting them to redeem themselves like there's no redemption on twitter it's like you do a bad thing you're a bad person a lot of the time so i always end the podcast with three questions charlie so i'm gonna i'm gonna hurl those questions at you now Sure. Um, and they might you, you might want to relate them back to what we've been talking about, although you might want to take them off in a completely different direction. So, if there was just one thing you could say to everybody listening about their relationship with the digital world or their phone as a tool to access the digital world or technology in general, what would it be? If there was just one kind of message you'd like people to think about. Sure, I think just just be smart and just remember that not everything that happens needs to be on online <laughs> yeah <laughs> and have you i don't know you know your thoughts about kind of tech life balance but have you got anything you do to make sure you get a good balance around online and offline have you no you know, I'm, where I'm, are you on rubbish. phones and bedrooms or you know <laughs> not having email on your phone or any of those kind of things no, I go, you know, I go in waves, I think, like a lot of people. And sometimes I'm like, you know, what, I'm just going to delete everything and get rid of everything. But it only sort of lasts for a short period of time. <laughs> One thing I have done is I've removed the like Twitter app from my phone. Um, yeah. But I still obviously can access it through browser. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, at various periods, I've, I've removed different apps from my phone. But yeah, I don't really have any hard and fast rules. And I probably definitely do have unhealthy behaviours attached to the internet but there's a lot of positives that I find on it as well and especially when I was growing up I I belonged to like a lot of online diary communities which are this that's kind of like a a topic for a whole new podcast episode to be honest because they're fascinating and I really want to write about them one day but um yeah from from when I was very young I I um would sort of write an online diary and it was actually a really positive experience and I've met some like beautiful people from it and and when I sort of get to like the internet's crap that's what I try and remember and yeah I'm going I'm actually going to a friend's wedding that I met on this online diary site next year which will be really lovely just explain because I've never heard about these online diaries so you write your diary and other people read your diary is that how they work yeah it's just you know it's 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 just like a glamorized blog really but like they exist they've been in existence since like the late 90s so they're like they're kind of like one of the oldest forms Mm. of 
social media i would argue on the internet and some of them were really like they're, they're kind of like culty so like they're they're popular and there might be thousands of users but no one ever really talks about it because you don't want people in your real yeah, life yeah, to, to find see them. what you're writing and yeah, find exactly. it yeah like your real diary yes not yeah, your real exactly. diary your physical diary yeah exactly but yeah so you you'd have these diary entries and people would comment underneath them and you sort of make these friendships and um like obviously you know if I was to be like mature about it <laughs> which I can be now which I probably couldn't have been when I was 12 and I started doing this like you know it's probably not the smartest thing for a 12 year old to be doing making sort of friendships with other random people who also claim to be 12 year olds <laughs> on the internet but it did turn out that like at least three or four of those women were actually genuinely who they said they were and you know we have each other on Facebook now and and as I say I'm I'm going to one of their weddings and she's sort of come over and visited me a couple of times in London so yeah it's a it's a really lovely lovely thing. One of my other guests said actually early on in the series that you know you have to keep reminding yourself there's actually a lot of good people on the internet and actually they are the majority sometimes yeah sometimes it's very easy to think about you know all the things that could go wrong and all the unpleasantness but actually Mm. largely there are wonderful communities of very supportive people online yeah definitely um so the final question is what do you think you've learned about yourself from the way you use the digital world i think i've you know i've learned everything about myself from from the way that I used the digital world. It was how Galdem started, and that was a huge sort of turning point for me in my life and in my journalism. As I said, like with the online diary community, I, I learned about other people's lives and how to, you know, having that empathy for people who literally live like such different lives from you. And I learned about sex, I learned about drugs, I learned about <laughs> anything that, you know, a young teenager would want to know about. I learned how to do my hair better, like Afro hair, <laughs> growing up as a black teen in Scotland where there wasn't very many people who could teach you those things. It's been so instrumental in my development and I feel very thankful to be growing up in an age where I have access to it. So, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's the perfect place to end, I think. Charlie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe 
ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.